The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. TGIF indeed. We're so happy to have you with us of a Friday, and we're very happy, as always, to be joined at the board where all the magic happens. Bad boy Benny Mathers is right there where he needs to be. Benny, how are you today? Doing very well. Hello, kids. And uh, Suzanne, is everyone uh, okay from your hometown? The polar vortex, everyone's through it. They okay? I have been checking with friends and family on a daily basis, and... They are okay. And uh, there was something so fascinating on television that I told my brother about it, and he said he was going to try it. What I saw on TV was when when the wind chill was 40 or 50 below zero, somebody went outside with a glass of water and threw it in the air, (laughs) and it came down like ice cubes. Or pretty much all evaporated, yeah. Right, all it was all like little crystals mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. were frozen crystals coming down. When I told my brother about it, he said, "Oh, I'm going to try that." So I don't know if he did or not, but uh, just don't do that by throwing your kids out the door. Right. A lot of people stayed home <laughs> from work. It was just too dangerous to go out. Yeah, a there lot was a lot of, of people that didn't make it in, and there was unfortunately, I believe, a FedEx employee uh, was trapped or now is uh, no longer with us because of a situation like that. So just. Man, really? Yeah, and and but double backing again with that story. So I'm from Alaska. I've had friends that have done that. It works. I also have a friend that moved from Alaska to Minnesota has done that. It works when you throw it up in the yeah. air. But I have seen this is a, be very careful when you're doing this, and it's not fun because not everywhere is that cold. And uh-huh. make sure you throw it to the side of you. <laughs> Not the hot water up above and in front of you. Let's just make this absolutely clear. You understand where I'm coming from. It didn't work yes, out for I one do. gentleman, and he got a face full of hot water. So it Reminds me of Jim Croce saying, you don't spit into the wind. Right, but not spit. Oh, man. Yes, everybody's safe in uh, snow. And one last weather-related note. Snow coming to Seattle by Monday. Yeah. Stop. Just Stop it. Oh, well, you know, we can't let everybody have all the fun. Yeah. Incredible. So, and I thought this was supposed to be El Nino winter and it was going to be warmer. I remember seeing, now this is many years ago, it might have been like 1999 or 2000, somewhere back then. But I remember a February day, February, where it was like 59 degrees and I'm out there and I'm doing the Snoopy dance and it was an El Nino year. And I thought that is terrific. Unless, of course, there's not enough water coming down from the mountains there and we have a water shortage in summertime. Delicate balancing act and now more than ever, it seems. There you go. Perfect. So, and with that being said, we have Patrick M. Andendahl back two Fridays in a row. Part two. Absolutely thrilled to have him back. He has written, well, a number of wonderful books, one of which becomes our principal focus today, Deliverance from Stupid Party Land. There's a subtitle in there too, Suzanne. How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. This is a pretty heavy-duty book. Uh, it's a very heavy-duty book. It's uh, it's also kind of a lengthy book, 400 pages. And I'm happy to say and, it's not devoid of hope. Oh, no, no, no. And as a matter of fact, um, let me just say that at the outset before I, I bring the author on with us, is that we have plenty to discuss, uh, especially in the first half hour. We're going to get into some good, heavy stuff. In the second half hour, we're going to tell you what's hopeful about what's going on. So stay with us through all the bad stuff, because we're going to get to some really good stuff in the second half hour. Mad props, mad props. 
Patrick Andendahl has always had an interest in politics and being multicultural. He views issues from a more international perspective. In 2004, five days before the election, he flew to Cleveland and pitched in to help with the political process. What he discovered was the dissolution of the American dream, which he writes about in his book, Stupid Party. Educated at English boarding schools from the age of seven, Andendahl went on to graduate from Lansing College. He started by sometimes working three jobs at once, trainee, underwriter, claim broker at Lloyd's of London, his own one-man cleaning company, plus doing seasonal work on various farms. Having made some windfall profits by borrowing money in order to be a stag to take advantage of opportunities created by Margaret Thatcher's denationalization policies of the mid-1980s, Andendahl evolved into an entrepreneur with a core specialty in reinsurance in London and New York, where he looks for patterns in numbers. Self-employed in a field not normally conducive to self-employment, he is able to remain in control, juggle different jobs, travel and pursue his various interests, ending up in New York via romance. He now lives on Long Island with his wife, two children and two dogs. I know that's a long bio. I just felt like all of that was important. Good. Welcome to part two on Manson Mitchell, Patrick Andendahl. So good to have you back again. Well, thank you very much for having me back on your show. I really appreciate we, it. Uh, we, we got further into the book. We, we read about half of it for last week. We read most of the second half for this week. And we already set the table last week in wanting to talk about money today. And, well, and, and, and what has kids. happened during the week, Gary, with regard to money? Well, deliverance is near and I'm just sure that Patrick will agree with us on this, Starbucks own Howard former Schultz, CEO, the former right? CEO, multi-billionaire Howard Schultz, will provide deliverance, I'm quite sure, because we have the opportunity now to turn the presidency over to a plutocrat. Seattle style came up from the projects in Brooklyn, I believe it was, made his fortune and his name in Seattle through the Starbucks brand. He's no longer the CEO, but he still, I believe, has the principal interest in that famous company, and he would like to be the CEO of the country. Patrick, our problems are solved. I don't think so. Not, not with, <laughs> not with uh, the, that, that person. He hadn't really been on my radar. I haven't really written about him. And I'm sure he did a pretty good job with his employees and all the rest. And um, Starbucks had helps in some of the, one of the issues I discussed about since you're not getting getting teachable moments about racism from the, the White House, you know, corporations are having to take on that responsibility. And probably Starbucks is forced to take on that responsibility because they had that incident in, the, in their own uh, coffee shop. And they had, right. you know, you had to train all their employees in every state, including some of the more, you know, suspect states, how, how you know, about racial integration and, and all the rest. And in terms of how Schwartz, uh, he's a real problem because he's, he's, he's uh, on, on two or three counts. On the one hand, he's the very epitome of false equivalence. He's now saying that both parties are the same. And the moment you say that, you're really making Trump and the Republican Party, you're normalizing everything they're doing, which is totally absurd. And I've devoted one chapter uh, talking about the mass of false equivalence. So one party is not the same as the other party. And then he blows various 
obvious strategies one needs the Democrats should adopt, which is um, single-payer health care. And he says it's too, America can't afford it. The truth of the matter is America cannot afford its present system. It's outrageously expensive. It's significantly expensive, more expensive than any other developed country in the world. And, of course, single-payer would actually reduce medical costs, not increase them. Uh, so, and then the other thing is you've got a billionaire who wants to buy the presidency uh, in order, obviously, he doesn't really want to pay sort of higher taxes on billionaires. And that's a major conflict, conflict of interest. So I think every, every word he says, every dime he spends, is damaging to this type of message that America needs to hear, which is the truth that one party is a lot more sensible and realistic than the other party. And one party is bigoted and racist and misogynistic, and the other party is not. I just don't feel like every entitled billionaire should be running for president especially anyone who has had zero political experience because running a company is not the same as running a country. And in this case, Gary and I were talking during the week about this, and we decided he should run for mayor of Seattle because once you fix the problems in Seattle, then you got something to talk about. And that would right. keep him busy yeah. for four years at least. That would keep him I busy. Mean, uh, if he really Seattle has a run, terrible you know, homeless yeah. problem and, you know, and traffic he, and everything and he also, else. He's claiming to be an ex-Democrat or a Democrat, and clearly he cannot be because uh, the, the core issues he, that are really important to this country, he's not supporting. And so every dime he spends will actually help the Republican Party be normalized. The beautiful That's thing right. about Trump, is that he, everything becomes transparent. Everything wrong about the Republican Party as it's devolved in the last eight, 20 years is apparent to anybody who chooses to look. Now, when you have people like Schultz hiding that by saying oh, somehow the Democratic agenda is as bad or as extreme, it's totally insane. So he's very damaging. Hopefully he gets a lot of kickback. I mean, I'm not, I'm not against billionaire. I mean, if Bloomberg wanted to run as a Democrat, I mean, he's proven himself to be a very successful mayor of New York. Um, he's, exp- he's proven himself to be very useful on progressive issues. He's probably not progressive enough on tax issues, but on other issues, he's very progressive. Uh, I'm not against a billionaire running, but I don't think a billionaire should be able to buy the presidency. They have to go through the process and get the support through primaries and all the rest. Um, so he's, it's very disappointing to see this, this guy running in the, fas- in the fashion that he's running. And, and I don't think it's going to last either. Uh, I think it's going to get enough pushback from any, you know, everybody is horrified, except, uh, yes. for, except for Trump supporters. Well, exactly. They're thrilled. Now, I don't think he understands what it is to even launch a campaign. He's testing the waters, and he's making a big mess just doing that, he's just, he's alienating destroying, he's, people. He's destroying vital messages, which is health care, which is a very simple issue. Clearly, you should have the public option, which will mathematically lead to single-payer. I'm not saying ram single-payer down Americans' throats. I'm saying you start with the public option and let the economics determine the outcome. The economics will determine uh, voluntarily the the road road to single-payer because Americans' healthcare system is ridiculously expensive and ridiculously ineffective. They're number 40 in the world, and they're the only country with an insurance-based system, for-profit-based system. Yes. And along those lines, there are plenty of people who would like to see that healthcare system stay as it is, including a little company called Purdue, 
which Gary and I were watching on the news today, who lied about the effects of opioids and its addictiveness right from the start. And now, once again, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars and 130 people dying each day from opioid addiction. The the interesting news about uh, opioid usage, and it's something that falls back into my actually regular day job, insurance, reinsurance, is that you're going to find this is going to become the latest massive insurance issue, a reinsurance issue that, you know, we've had asbestos, you've had various other, you know, sex, uh, Me Too movement is going to be coming bigger and bigger in terms of claims and all the rest. The opioid usage has become a huge issue, will become a huge insurance loss. And what that really means is once you start find, uh, finding, law, getting awards against the, every, everybody involved, including insurance companies, healthcare companies, everybody involved in allowing people to have uh, unquantifiable uh, amounts of opioid uses, they're going to get sued, rightly or wrongly, but they're going to lose billions and billions. And that will create the risk management to actually start the process of resolving the opioid uh, problem. So in 10 years' time, you'll find mm-hmm. that it's going to be far less of a problem and it's going to be created because of these lawsuits. It's all about the money. Yes. And that is that in the remaining time we have here before our break, I want to talk about the money because, um, you know, we hear on TV a lot about the oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs, 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 oligarchs. I'm not sure that everybody really gets what the oligarchy is. And I thought today I would just take the definition right out of the dictionary, a form of government in which the ruling power is in the hands of a few persons. And I go right to your book where you cite in the book that the four heirs of Sam Walton of Walmart fame and Sam's club Four heirs, not four people who started the company, but the four heirs of Sam Walton have as much money as 40% of everybody in the United States. Now, that is too much money in the hands of too few people when you are when you have so few people who are equal to hundreds of thousands or millions of other people. And I wanted to talk about how the United States currently could be looked at as another oligarchy and not a democracy. So have at it, Patrick. Well, yes. I mean, I don't specifically cite that America is an oligarchy. What I do say is that professors and academics who look at this issue, many of them believe and would argue that America is an oligarchy. But whether it is or is not is sort of a moot point. The key question is, if the following, if the Trends we presently have of income discussions trends, if they carry on going the way they've gone in the last 40 years, you, there's no possibility of avoiding being called an oligarchy. You just have to ask yourself a very simple question. What happens if more, more money ends up in the power of fewer and fewer hands? What does the country become? It becomes an oligarchy. It becomes uh, sort of um, either initially maybe a benign, benign dictatorship or a, then that will descend into a mal, you know, an evil dictatorship. So if we're not an oligarchy today, and a lot of people argue that we are, we will ever inevitably become one if you don't do something to reverse income discrepancy trends. Absolutely true. Now, let me throw in a little bit of bad news for you. Uh, will it come to pass? Hope to God not. But Patrick, I read just this morning 
in a one of my favorite blogs having to do with trends around the world, especially political trends, that no less a personage than Majority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell is backing legislation to repeal the estate tax. Now, if we repeal the estate tax altogether, does this not put the last piece of the puzzle together to achieve legislatively dynastic wealth in America? Probably. I mean, the estate act, if you're talking about redistributing wealth, if you're talking about mitigating income discrepancy trends, uh, the most obvious, easy way to do it is by looking at estate taxes. And if you remove them from the wealthy, then that's your biggest tool. Your second biggest tool is obviously um, income taxes on, you know, like, like some Democrats are suggesting right now, which is sort of obvious that you, you, you grade, you, 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 as you earn more and more, you know, when your annual income goes to 1 million, to 2 million, to 5 million, to 100 million, you, you, create, you pay gradually more income tax on that number, ever-increasing amount. I'm not going to say what it is, because my, my position is you can have any taxes you want. You can apply any tax cuts, reductions, as long as the overall package leads to changing income discretionary trends. I'm happy with any, ta any tax you can name, but that's got to be the end result. Now, getting rid of estate taxes is a really absurd notion. And it's designed, obviously, the reason why we're even seeing it is because wealthy people are running the government and they're paying for that legislation. Yes, wealthy people are running the government. When you, there was something in the book that I, I had just read today about how um, 20, I think it was 20 people had contributed over $10 million a piece and they're they're doing this with their their local uh, senators, governors, and presidents for that access, so yeah, that yeah. they can determine this type of legislation. If if the senators and the and the spend so much time, if our Congress spends so much time trying to raise money, and you've got some poor guy there who can give you five dollars. And somebody there who can give you five million dollars. Who is it? Which which uh, meeting are you going to take? Well, look, you know, no, I, I, this is this is not really shocking stuff. I think eighty percent of Americans understand, and at least at the very least, intuitively understand. There's far too much money in politics. But you, the fact that eighty percent of Americans agree on a bunch of subjects doesn't really translate into votes in the Congress because the Congress, congressional people are not really that interested in what 80% of Americans believe. They're interested in what 80% of their contributors believe, the people that actually finance their campaigns. And those people are saying, we're happy with have money in politics because we're able, you know, I've actually in the first book, I actually came up with a number. It's like, you know, Congress, you know, for a $50,000 contribution, you can get an influence for this, this, and this. You can actually figure it out if you look at all the contributions and how that buys votes of congressional uh, people in Congress. So this is not news. And, the prob and I think most Americans accept that the solution must be less money in politics. The problem is, when you talk about publicly financed campaigns, is that most Americans aren't willing to pay for it. Now, one reason why they're not willing to pay for that is because they have a false notion of how much it would cost, because when Republicans talk about how much uh, public financing would cost, they massively exaggerate the numbers, because they, they use numbers where every candidate would use the maximum amount allotted, which, if you had in any sort of sensible uh, public finance reform, that would not be the case. 
Um, so if the Americans were given the right numbers about how much it would likely cost, you'd probably get a lot more support for it, but maybe not even enough because Americans, are, you, know, when, you know, if it's going to cost you $10, uh, why, why I don't want to pay for it. You know, it's like people who want to buy a book and they, they go into walk into a bookshop and they're not thinking it one dollar cheaper at Amazon. They'll browse the bookshop and not buy and then buy it on Amazon. So you know, people aren't willing. Very few people seem to be willing to go out of their way in any way. And of course, public finance is the solution. Is is, is one of the biggest possible solutions. But Americans, it seems, research shows, aren't that excited about paying for it. Uh, one of the things that I am the most excited about was the very first uh, bill put out by the House of Representatives, H.R. 1, which has to do with um, uh, um, um, what am I trying to say? Election uh, financing and the possibility of um, doing away with Citizens United. And this is where so much of that dark money hides out is in the corporations. But yes, the there. Yeah, the, go ahead. I think the problem with that maybe, and I mean, obviously, I think 80% of Americans would probably like to do away with that those type of contributions. But I think the problem is it becomes a constitutional issue. I don't. I'm not sure if Congress can uh, get rid of Citizens United. I think it has to go to the Supreme Court. So you have to change the, and that's not going to happen. Obviously, the Supreme Court. So I think you need a constitutional amendment. And I, I'm not sure if that's that feasible. That is, that is the great ball of doubt. We're not sure if it's feasible. I don't have any problem with a an oligarch or a plutocrat if they want to spend a billion dollars trying to get themselves elected president and it's their money. I have no ethical qualms about that. I do have a serious problem. Now, I'm a registered Democrat in the state of Florida, so I mean, I'm, I'm on the other side of this fence anyway. But what I will say is, it's always rather disgusted me, Patrick, when I see a lineup of Republican worthies who have presidential ambitions going out to Las Vegas and kissing the ring and presumably anything else he wants kissed of Sheldon Adelson, who dispenses his largesse in order to make sure that his massive wealth, far wealthier is he than Donald Trump. Well, he, you know, that, obviously, Adelson's motivated by two things, allowing his gambling wealth to to massively grow wherever it is throughout yes. the world, and, his, and also his, his, his adherence to extreme uh, nationalism, Israeli nationalism, and supporting Netanyahu. So he, anybody who receives money, any GOP candidate who receives money from Adelson, especially you know, talk about talk about um, Rubio and people like that, they because because those people are empty suits. So once you give an empty suit uh, the money to become president, then that like, people like Marco Rubio would simply reflect the views of Netanyahu uh, when it comes to foreign policy. And Netanyahu himself is a stunningly dishonest politician who's been lying about Iran and about Iraq since 1992. And you, you can have, you know, I've listed statement after statement made but by him that's proved, it's proven to be incorrect every year. And he's the key reason why Repu the Republican Party is now in bed with extreme Israeli policy to take down the, the, the very important Iran deal and, and stuff like that. And Adelson basically would be quite happy to nuke, and I think he's been quoted as saying it, you know, that's just nuke, you know, whatever country in the Middle East he objects to today. So those are his two driving forces. 
to make tons of money for his gambling empire and also to align himself with the far right in Israel. And I think probably yes. some, you know, they, they, these people have bought out many parts of the Republican Party. And remember, the Republican Party only had, for a long time, one Jewish congressman. It's been, and that Jewish congressman, and I, who was a mate, Eric Cantor, I believe, uh, he reviewed the Republican, his own Republican colleagues as being anti-Semite uh, and having that streak running through them. But since they've now been people like Adelson and other hedge, billionaire hedge fund managers, they've bought off the Republican Party, and therefore the Republican Party is now in bed with the extreme elements in, in Israel. You know, I'm glad you said that, Patrick, because just over the past few days, it's come home to me again, something that had occurred to me earlier, and that is, if you look at the very complex Iran deal, and if you look at the multinational, the multi-party aspects of it, it seems to me, technically, our own intelligence people are saying before Congress that Iran is in compliance but there is they not are evidence compliance. that... Remember, the Iran, the Iran deal was negotiated by all the nations in the world. It took years. Yes. <clears throat> and you're talking about now, right now, obviously, the Iranian regime, especially Rouhani himself, the, uh, the prime minister, um, he, he has more intellectual veracity and integrity than anyone in the White House. Now, I'm not, I'm not supporting the Iran regime. I mean, it's anti-democratic right. because the, 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 the mullah there... And you know you would like to see the green revolution, but the fact is they have more, more uh, they have a higher moral authority than the Republican Party. They had to write a letter to the 47 treacherous senators who tried to undermine the deal when, uh, under Obama by in, and inviting Netanyahu into Congress to I talk recall. his lies. They committed a form of treason, and they had to write a letter to those 47 senators lecturing them on what the Constitution really says about <laughs> the president's ability to negotiate the trade deals yes. and foreign policy. So well, that's they, they are a cut above Trump and his people. It seems to me that in the mind of Donald Trump, and he calls this Iran, Iran deal one of the worst ever, a disaster, horrible deal, it seems to me his principal objection, at least tacitly, is that Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't like it. Correct. Oh, well, I was, and, and the Republican Party has been paid off uh, in the last 10 years by, by these massively wealthy um, Israeli businessmen in, 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 in the U.S. And it's very, it's very sad because, you know, um, obviously, you know, I've been to um, uh, Jerusalem and, and I've been to the West Bank and I've been to uh, uh, various places around there and it's you know, it's a Jerusalem's a beautiful city, and and Israel's an amazing country. But you know, the wall—it's just sad that they. It's not. It's not simply. I guess the war. I guess they did need it because, to some extent, you know, there was a lot of. You know, there was a lot of extreme. The, the history of the Palestinian troubles is so complicated. They don't want to. They don't even want to get into it. But. What, what, however you view it, it's still a, it's still a prison. You're creating your own prison when you build a wall. I mean, we're around here, you know. The, if you build a wall around your house, you're the one imprisoning yourself. It's like the wall in Texas, the market. It, it's not really a long-term strategy because there's always ways round through and whatever walls. And most of the people that I met in the West Bank, because somebody close to me was actually working in Hebron for a while, doing research. Um, you know, most of the people we met. The, the Palestinians, you know, who are not, you know, just said, all we want to do is 
go to the beach. Just give them, we don't even want, necessarily need the vote or whatever it is. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about, and bear in mind, the West Bank is far more safe and moderate than uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to those people, you see a functioning economy, and you see people who want, like everybody else, like 80% of them, what they care about is raising their kids in peace and having a life. And it's only, you know, it's obviously the extremists on each side who create the problems that are ruining people's lives. But it's very sad to see that, you know, there's no real honest effort for American, American foreign policy now. There's, there's no realistic effort to be an honest peace broker between the two parties. And that's what you've got, you got, got to keep trying to do. And um, Netanyahu is like an intelligent version of Donald Trump. <laughs> we need to take a break. And when we come back, there's so much more to discuss. Now or can't contain it, but we like scratching the surface with a gentleman like Patrick M. Andedal. Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, that's the name of his latest book. He's got several others that will draw your attention, and we'll make sure that we mention those on the other side of this short break. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Organic, free-range, and fresh daily. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Down in the boondocks, wage disparity. The rich, the poor. We are talking with Patrick M. Andendahl, 
who has written a book that we have read called Deliverance from Stupid Party Land. And Patrick, you have written some other books. And if people would like to find out about your books or connect with you, what is your website and how can they get your books? Um, my website is stupidpartyland.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at and and all, uh, whatever. I think that's all we have, at whatever it is. That's just one name. You should pop up. Um, and obviously Amazon is the obvious place to, to find it. And then you, I guess, just type in my name or type in the name Deliverance Stupid Party Land, and it will pop right up. Um, the other books being you know, Stupid Party, Stupid Math We Miss, which was just laying out all the math about all the, all the stuff going on in the last the Republican Party since around 2000. The second book, uh, Jeb Bush, is more really um, about the Bush family and dynasty going back to you know, 1950 or so. And it's quite fun to do because it really starts, once you start understanding the Bush dynasty, you start understanding how America got set up for going down the down, downward spiral through their policies, which is sort of based on oil and based on the CIA and based on secret societies and all the rest, and how... They really managed to take the intellectual uh, meat out of the country and set everything up for the fact that, you know, nutty things started happening in 2000 and then, you know, when it was laying the groundwork for when somebody like Sarah Palin becomes a serious presidential or vice presidential candidate when she has zero knowledge or, and worse than that, actually. So, you know, when you can actually think about having a Sarah Palin running your country, you you reached a pretty bad intellectual point uh, point in, in in the evolution of a country when you can take these type of candidates fairly you know seriously. Patrick, I I mentioned at the outset of our hour that there was going to be some good news, and so I I do want to devote some of this time to that. I may be oversimplifying this. In fact, I'm almost certain I am. But as I read your book, my sense of it is that the the prosperity of the United States after the Second World War was putting us in a very particular direction, especially as it relates to the Middle East and oil and gas and all of that. However, in further reading your book, in addition to this trajectory, this path now of putting more and more money into fewer and fewer hands. There's also the intervening what happened 30 plus years ago when around 1985, we, we, there was a second parallel trajectory going on, which seems to be quite a bit more positive. And uh, one of the one of the statistics that really struck me was worldwide poverty. In 1985, I think we were looking at about 26 percent. About one every of every four people worldwide was living in extreme poverty. That figure has changed over the last three decades. So I wanted you to say a little bit about that. While, while one of the directions that we're going in is this income inequality with too much money and too few hands, but there's also something else going on that maybe isn't quite out there as much. And that's what I wanted you to talk about during our last half hour. Okay. Well, um, in terms of uh, world poverty, I mean, yeah, the UN has got, strategies in place to massively reduce the number by 2030, and they're on target to do that. I've forgotten what number they hope to get to, but 
make, making it up down from, from say 20% of the world population to five. That's that order of magnitude of improvement. And a, lo- a lot of it's not just the UN's budget for that is actually pretty modest compared to billionaires coming, especially coming from the United States. So if you take the uh, the, the Bill Gates and Linda Foundation with his, you know Warren Buffett and all the rest, you know they, uh, it's a charitable, massive charitable organization. They probably figured out you get far better bang for your buck if you go overseas because Americans don't really want to be helped. It seems to me the people who are cutting their own throats economically. So you might as well go overseas and. People like that, and, and also the Clinton Foundation has also been very effective in treating medical conditions, uh, getting medical supplies, helping birth control and stuff like that, and doing tons of things that relieve poverty. And those, those mechanisms have been hugely, hugely successful. And so, yes, world poverty has been tackled and quite successfully. And the solutions are, you know, are pretty simple. You empower, you empower women. You give women birth control uh, and stuff like that. Um, and you just in medicine and access, you know, smallpox, you know, all the various diseases and all the rest. And you invest in what's called trickle-up economics. So you have these. There's a charity called I think was it, I think it's well, it's now called now I think it's called trickle-up, where you say it's called micro. You give somebody a micro loan, mm. and, and actually that, those don't work. Micro loans are actually bad news because you you suffer somebody with debt. You give them a micro grant. So you give a grant for say a hundred dollars to a woman. You, a single woman who to help her start a little business in a, in a, in a, in a village in India or wherever it is. And those, those have been hugely successful operations. There's a slight problem once you start giving microloans and banks start doing it, because then you run into other sort of issues. But micro-grants have been very successful and trickle up, and the numbers of how it helps that woman and her family and her relations, they can stop getting their kids sent to school, is just really exciting. Um, now, then, talking about the, but the biggest trend that I've spotted that I don't think anyone else is talking about is the nature of the oligarchs. And this is where the good news is. If you look at the, yes. if you look at the, um, wealthy, the, the wealthiest people in 1985, they tended to be oil-based, all, you know, retail, gambling, and this and that type companies. And, and I also spent a chapter looking at philanthropy, too, because I wanted to establish to myself what do second-rate people, billionaires, how do they give their money away and appear to be philanthropists? So I wanted to set up this notion, understanding of just because somebody gives their money to charity does not make them useful to society or useful to mankind. And that's why I said that that chapter before we got onto this stuff about deliverance and how oligarchs can potentially deliver us, because you have two types of oligarchs. You have the good oligarch and you have the bad oligarch. I've always said to people, you know, gone about the 1% against the 99%, which is obviously a poetic license because it's, uh, uh, obviously the number is a lot smaller than 1% in terms of running the country. But half of, half of that 1%, they're not bad people. On the other half, they're sort of greedy and myopic and only care about themselves. And so what's happened since 1985, if you look at the makeup of the wealthiest 30 people today compared to 1985 and where they will be in 2025, you will see a staggering development. But it's coming, the wealth now belongs to new technology. Um, it's more Silicon Valley-based, more California-based. It's out of the Midwest, it's out of Kansas. It's away from the Adelsons, it's away from the Koch brothers. So, it's a, so basically by 2025, I've forgotten my numbers now, but the so-called good oligarchs will have probably 80% of the wealth. And right now, the oligarchs, 
the billionaires are in the country. You know, they sort of know we're all screwed. And they're, they're building up, you know, palaces. They're trying to find exit strategies, whether it's going out in space or whether it's going, buying a mansion in New Zealand and getting citizenship there. They're not actually investing their money in solving the problems that face mankind. They, um, with the possible exception of Elon Musk, he's doing it. And he's had a lot of fans, other billionaires, who know what he's doing uh, is actually vital. Uh, you have Larry Page, who said, you know, when I die, he may have said it jokingly, I'll give all my money to uh, Elon Musk, because he's one billionaire who's actually putting his money where his mouth is, <laughs> and he's trying to come up with solutions. But uh, there are a lot of people in that, especially the Silicon Valley type, there's a different type of person. Uh, and I go into the Silicon Valley culture compared to the Midwest culture in the book. And I think if presented with, a, if you presented them with a, um, an idea, said, look, why don't you do this? rather than spend all your money building a mansion in New Zealand or trying to escape the planet. Now, having said that, I totally support Musk's idea of, of colonizing Mars, and he's doing that to help mankind, I think, not for him to personally escape. But I, you know, I think when, when the time comes, around 2025, when they have so much more economic power than these old fossilized oligarchs, you know, 80 to 20 percent, and I think... If we, if, they, if, we could, if they could be approached to, to buy back American democracy, because I don't think Americans have become too passive and they're too beaten up with all the problems that they're facing and all the nonsense that's spoken, especially by the Republican Party, I think that they, it would be possible to repurchase American democracy. I like the way that you lay that out. I also like the way you talk about good oligarchs and bad oligarchs, because in my reading of it, your bad oligarchs just want to amass and mass more money, keep more people under their thumb. Um, well, look, and, look what they give. Look what they give to. They give to right to to educational institutions where they will bear their names, the mansions and libraries. Right. They give to diseases where they fear that they will suffer from, or their children suffer from, or their spouse suffers from. So what's happened is with a lot of these, some of these oligarchs, they're confronted with some personal tragedy. Like their, right. son, their son is, their, their wife is dying with breast cancer, or maybe in their view that my son is gay or whatever it is, and you'll suddenly see them rejoining humanity on those issues. It's quite extraordinary. I, mean, I, 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 I did a sort of random way of testing this. You know, I explained my methodology of the, uh, the oligarchs I, uh, that I looked into about uh, philanthropy and all the rest, and these patterns are stunning. And the other thing, obviously, the, the other thing I found troubling was a lot of the wealthy, you know, they also be tribalistic, they give to their own tribes. Um, so they give to tribes, they give to diseases where they fear themselves or for their family, and they give to causes uh, really designed for their own, to build their own pyramids for themselves so they can live on in eternity right. and bury their, when, bury their wealth it, in that pyramid. Right, <laughs> and then when you talk about the good oligarchs, the the top uh, billionaires who are not self-centered or greedy, you're talking about people who are looking to do good in the world. And it was interesting that you said earlier that Americans don't want to be helped. So some of these top billionaires who are doing good in the world are doing that good outside of the United States because that's where it is so appreciated, where they can put money into starting up new businesses in very poverty-stricken places and eradicate disease in, in very poverty-stricken places, 
where they are really making a difference that can be seen. Uh, one of the things that you said that was so interesting about trickle up economics, we don't hear about that. The trickle down is we want to give more and more money to the 1% and then that money will somehow trickle down and help the, the people at the bottom. Well, it never quite gets to the bottom. That is well, one well, of the myths about well, trickle-down economics. Every, yes, well, trick is called supply-side economics, and every every great every depression, every great recession is caused by uh, too much trickle-down economics. I mean, and you had you had it in the, you had it in the tax plan uh, by the Republican Party at the end of last year. That's trickle-down economics. Now, the thing right. is, like, if you if you do pump a trillion dollars into the economy, it does it does create economic activity. And in, in the case of what happened here, maybe 20, you know, it's a multiplier effect, and it will have a short-term beneficial impact on the economy, which we're now seeing. But, it was, but the trouble is, you've now, unless economic growth stays above 35 4%, which is right. virtually impossible to imagine, you're, mm -hmm. the deficit will grow, event, and that will start happening later this year when you know, people are already look, looking at those numbers. The deficit will grow, and then the Republican Party will have no choice but to cut the deficit. And, of course, the way you do that is to reduce goods and services to people who need it. So the benefits and, will, will, right. will start, you know, food stamps and all the rest will go. Now, the thing about trickle-up economics, trickle up. Yeah. which is where we want to get to, is most right. economists agree, would come up with a number that trickle-up economics is about two and a half times more effective than trickle-down in terms of stimulating the economy. Right. I believe they get, they've all got that number. I come up with a number, seven, I say it's 700% more, more stimulative than trickle-down. And the reason why standard economists uh, haven't cottoned onto this is because they take an orthodox view. They take the top 50% of the country versus the bottom 50% of the country. And if you give the top 50% uh, a tax increase and, uh, and put more money in the hands of it, they'll say it's that's uh, sorry, tax increase and more money and tax cuts to the bottom 50%. They argue incorrectly that, that will, that's two and a half times more stimulative than, um, on average, than trickle down. But I argue that that's not America's problem. If only we were talking 50% against the top 50 against the bottom 50, that's not what we're arguing. We're arguing the top 10% against the bottom 90, the top 1% against the bottom 99, or whatever it is. And if you just did the math on the top 10 against the bottom 90, and you look at, it's called marginal propensity to consume. It's an economic standard tool. You look at the economics. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just have to spend, spend five minutes thinking about term and terminology. If you did it that way, then you'll see that, the, that it's 700% more stimulative. So, well, and I want to simplify that a little bit by something that you said in the book, which is that when super rich people get more money, they save it. Correct. When the poorest it. people get more money, they spend it. Correct. So, I mean, so there, there's, food, there's food the stamps, economy. Yeah. Food stamps, which is much maligned by the Republican Party, and by the way, the counties with, which with the highest reliance on, on food stamps are usually massively white, rural, and all the rest. So this notion that it's black people gaming the system is, is, is obscene. I mean, obviously, people do. You find people gaming the system, and it could be 5%. Game the system, but that's not really the big picture. So, um, but food stamps itself is a very economically stimulative, effective tool. Plus, it helps people not starve. Yes. The other thing, one of the other things that I found very heartening was um, this uh, exposing 
the NRA as possibly, possibly being the um, 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 dispensing of money into the Republican Party from the Russians so that the NRA and the Russians are so inextricably tied together. It's like well, the Russians well, yeah. used I mean, the, the NRA to... The, to, the NRA people aren't smart, not smart enough to have done that. Um, uh, yeah, yes, now, I, I understand that. They, they're, they were they're, def- just, they're just right. tools of, of Russian foreign policy. Now, I, right. I, when I write about the NRA, and I wrote about them in my first book, it's, you know, I, I, I try to explain to people it's actually an insidious organization. And, and the main reason is, like, it's not because the NRA members are the problem. 80% no. of NRA pro- members are fine. You know, they, 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 they're willing to debate issues about gun issues. They're willing to have that debate. But back in the 1990s, the NRA was taken over by an extreme right-wing, quasi-nationalist you know, bunch of nutjobs who've been running it ever since. So anybody who's taken money from the NRA, any politician who takes money from the NRA, has blood on their hands. And, you know... Well, uh, well, what I wanted to say about that was from the news this week in the last couple of days, there was a, a news item where the NRA has, in the last two years since, um, since Trump was elected, they have become a shell of their former selves, that they are, are not well, the powerhouse that, that, that they yeah, used to they're be. Collapsing in themselves. The, point, the, the point I want to get across to NRA supporters and fans is like the NRA is not a democratic organization. So the leadership does not reflect the views of its membership. It's fine for gun rights advocates to have organizations representing their views, but it's not fine to be part of the NRA because your views are not being represented by your leadership. And there are other organizations as a gun advocate you can join join, that are more rational. But the NRA is not a democratic, it's been taken over. And the way they have their committees has got nothing to do with the views of their membership. And so there's the there's the good news. I mean, the potential collapse of the NRA, the fact yes. that in the future, if the trajectory remains the way it has been, oil is definitely going away. It's same thing with coal. Well, clear, I mean, well clearly, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as clean coal, and clearly, um, yeah, the oil thing is really exciting. To me is like yes. sure, whatever numbers you see in terms of the future demand for oil uh, the, the demise of oil will happen a lot more rapidly than any graph would suggest right now and if you take um and it's already the the, the time frame has already moved forward 20 years in the last five years if you looked at the numbers from standard theorists and statisticians if you look at the numbers five years ago um it, the, the basic model was once battery cost reached whatever it is a hundred dollars per um whatever the, the, the framework was, yeah. at the time it was $800 and the battery cost rate, and they need to reach $100 for each parity. Those, those numbers said it wouldn't reach $100 until 2040. Well, now it's, pretty, it's almost there. It's almost at 100 It may be 115 So um, The electric so battery for the, for the electric faster. car. Well, electric cars obviously won, is won the debate. I mean, people yes. haven't figured out, but if you look at the numbers, you look at the performance, you look at the, the life expectancy of the, the, the most recent iterations, you know, you're talking about a Tesla able to do a million miles uh, compared to a nice engine, uh, internal combustion engine doing 150 to 200,000 miles. The depreciation is way better. The cost of ownership would be way, le- way less over a five-year time frame. And the moment the Model 3 at 35,000 
comes out, which will be in the middle of this year, uh, that's equivalent to buying a, buying a $20,000 ICE car, uh, internal combustion engine. The cost of ownership of a $35,000 car over a five-year period for a Model 3 will be the same as buying a, a $20,000 regular car. So anybody who's willing to spend $20,000 on a new car should be willing to spend $35,000 on a Model 3. There you go. It, that's the way it's heading. And, and that's only going to get better. I mean, he said in his press conference the other day, building in China, he said, well, we think the cost of building the new factory will be half of what it was here. And in fact, our internal numbers say it's going to be 75% less. So that's obviously too good. So we're, not, we're, not, we're presuming that's not correct. But they're going to be half the cost. And he's come up with another patent today suggesting uh, the technology with new his batteries going up is getting more sophisticated than we're, we're fully than we're aware of right now. So these numbers are changing really rapidly. And taking out oil is just huge in terms of Middle East policy, terrorism, um, and obviously global warming. Uh, getting off of oil here for a second and batteries and whatnot, I just want your opinion, Patrick. In another couple of weeks, is the government going to shut down again? I would imagine... Um, it would be more sensible if I'm Trump. And I remember I couldn't, I couldn't see six, months ago, six weeks ago how he could back down. And obviously what made him back down was LaGuardia Airport closing down for a couple of hours and his tribe struggling to fly around places back to their mansions and stuff. And then, boom, the million workers they didn't give a damn about who weren't paid, what they cared about was their own type struggling to take off from LaGuardia. And, boom, two hours later, the government closed it down. Now, having closed it down... Reclosing it, he's lost all of his momentum and edge, and it takes a long time to build it. So I don't see how repeating that strategy can possibly work. So I suspect the strategy will be to declare a state of emergency and um, try and use federal funds, and that will go to court. And then the yeah. courts will stop it, and it will be stuck in courts for four years. So he can, cl he can claim that uh, he's done everything he's he can. He's yep. face. So that's the most likely scenario. Thank you, Patrick. We got to go. Thank you for uh, joining us again today for part two. Deliverance from Stupid Party Land is the name of the book. And thank you for being with us today, Patrick. Coming up next, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Hour. Have yourselves a great weekend, everybody. This is AM 1150, Seattle's home of alternative talk. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.